Life Audio. Thank you for joining us for Sound Reasoning with Christian apologist and minister Perseus Poku of Sound Reasoning Ministries. It's our prayer that today's program will educate, train, and empower you to defend your Christian faith with confidence. Perseus has his bachelor's in history and a master's degree in apologetics. We hope you enjoy this time of equipping so that you can answer questions to defend your Christian faith effectively. Now here's Perseus Poku on Sound Reasoning. Welcome to Sound Reasoning. I'm your host, Perseus Poku. On our show today, we want to look at the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John from an apologetic perspective. And after a word from our sponsors, we'll get started on the topic today. Hello, folks. My name is Derek Greer, and I'm reaching out to fellow pastors and church leaders just like you to join me and other Christian leaders and organizations throughout the nation as we come together on June 8th and 9th for National Unity Weekend. Together, we will show the love of Jesus as we serve our communities on Saturday, June 8th, and then preach from a shared text on Sunday, June 9th. To register, go to unityweekend.com. That's unityweekend.com to join us as we unite the church and unite the nation. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Uh, This... Gospel of John is not like the synoptics. The, the word synoptic meaning similar. So when we use the term synoptic, we're talking about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They are very similar as it relates to its content, its focus, and its approach. But the Gospel of John is very distinct. Uh, John uh, looks at Christ from a divine angle. He looks at uh, Christ as the Lagos, the unifying thought behind everything in Greek culture, uh, which is implied or inferred to connect to the God of the universe. And he's making an argument that Jesus is not any less God than the Father. He's not any less God than the Holy Spirit, that he is fully God. And uh, John highlights these attributes. In terms of authenticity, the question arises, can we trust the gospel of John? As it relates to uh, the authenticity of Asian documents, there's a method that is used to verify if a manuscript is indeed valid, meaning that uh, it's not corrupt or it's not fabricated. 
So in regards to the New Testament manuscript, the two most pressing questions that we must answer is, do we have what they wrote? And is what they wrote accurate or are what they wrote accurate? Do we have what they wrote and are what they wrote accurate? Furthermore, the late uh, professor of military history, uh, Chauncey Sanders, in his book, uh, which was um, addressing the issue of authenticity, said in his book, An Introduction to English Literary History, Sanders stated the following. The evidence upon which we must rely in attempting to solve problems of authenticity and attribution may be classified as external, internal, and bibliographical. So he gives three categories to unpack or determine or discern whether a manuscript is authentic. You can find it from outside sources that corroborate the actual text. You can find it internally, meaning that the author said something in his or her writing that uh, prove that the text is legitimate or bibliographical. Uh, sometimes you find corroborating evidence in what somebody else has written about the topic. So this is what um, Mr. Sand, uh, Sanders uh, was talking about in his book. Now let's take a look at the internal evidence for the book of John. And I just, I really love reading the book of John when I think about the introduction in the beginning, God, which is really uh, written in a way to connect us back to the beginning. In the beginning was the word, in the be- uh, and the word was with God. The word was God. The same was in the beginning. Uh, it, it's designed to trigger our memory senses to go back to the book of, of Genesis, chapter 1, in the beginning, God. So John writes it, uh, his prologue, uh, by using the same style that was used in the book of Genesis. And he's going somewhere with it. He's getting ready to unveil to us who Jesus is ontologically, his beingness. He's getting ready to reveal that to us. So it's important that uh, when we're reading the book of John, we appreciate all of these nuggets that's connected to this particular book. Now, in terms of internal evidence, Um, it means that we can find clear corroboration within the text itself. For example, we know clearly from within the text that, um, as an example of, of, of authorship, we know when we read the book of Philippians, it's clear that Paul is the writer. Um, it it, is right there in the text. Number two, the style is consistent when we talk about the book of John, the style is consistent with other Johannian letters. Uh, when we look at First, uh, Second, Third John, the style is consistent, and uh, that's uh, basically his signature. The way that individuals write, sometimes you can tell that this uh, writing comes from a particular author because of the style of writing. Same thing with John. When we look at first, second, third John, it's symmetrical to the gospel. The use of the phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved, uh, also, uh, which is found in John thirteen twenty three, is connected to John himself um, based on historicity and based on um, other corroborating factors. 
So the use of the phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is often connected to uh, John the Apostle. When Jesus uh, was in his last moments, uh, he committed his mother or connected his mother to John. Um, and, and John was the one who was very close to Christ as it relates to uh, his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. So John had firsthand knowledge of who Jesus uh, was. Uh, he was part of the uh, disciple team. Then furthermore, he was part of the inner circle. Uh, so he was very close to Jesus. And as a result, uh, he had intimate knowledge about Jesus. Now, in terms of external evidence, uh, that means there's evidence that exists outside of the written composition, which reinforces claims that are found internally. So, again, external evidence means there's evidence that exists outside of the text itself, which reinforces the text. And external evidence, we can take a look at archaeology. Uh, for example, uh, if you get a chance to visit the John Ryland um, fragment, um, it, 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 and it's found in London, um, the museum where it's stored, you'll notice that, it, and it's called P52, it's a fragment, it's a piece of manuscript, it's called P52, Papyrus 52, and on one side you'll see uh, John 18, 31 through 33, that's John chapter 18, verses 31 through 33, and the other side you'll see uh, verses 37 through 38. And it's significant. This P52 fragment is significant um, because it's one of the earliest manuscripts we have in Christendom, which means the earlier the manuscript is uh, in relation to the time of the events, the more likely that it's truthful because it's so close to the actual events. Think of it this way. If something happened yesterday or something happened uh, last week in comparison to a year ago, you're more likely to remember what happened last week than what happened a year ago. So the closer the document is in terms of dating to the actual events, um, the more trustworthy uh, it, 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 it probably is versus something that is uh, decades or centuries uh, from the actual event. Then, in terms of external events, the writings of the early church fathers, Irenaeus, Bishop of, of Lyons and, uh, of France, also say John is the author of this gospel in, in his work Against Heresies, which was written in 185 AD. As a youth, uh, Irenaeus was acquainted with Polycarp, who was John's direct disciple. So we're looking at A.D. 70 uh, to 156 A.D. That's when Polycarp lived. And so from this writing by Irenaeus, um, we know something about John. And he, kn he knows about John because, again, uh, he was acquainted with John's student, his, uh, um, his, his student and mentee, uh, Polycarp. Let us take a break to recognize our sponsors and we'll be right back. 
Hello, folks. My name is Derek Greer, and I'm reaching out to fellow pastors and church leaders just like you to join me and other Christian leaders and organizations throughout the nation as we come together on June 8th and 9th for National Unity Weekend. Together, we will show the love of Jesus as we serve our communities on Saturday, June 8th, and then preach from a shared text on Sunday, June 9th. To register, go to unityweekend.com. That's unityweekend.com to join us as we unite the church and unite the nation. Then Eusebius, who lived in the fourth century, um, he, uh, he, he wrote that the fourth gospel was written by John in his work, uh, Ecclesiastical History. So Eusebius writing writing on ecclesiastical history, uh, mentions that the fourth gospel was written by John. Now, these dates are important because they are early. These are early dates, according to uh, historians. These are early dates. And again, the earlier the date is, the more probable that the composition is accurate. So when it comes to the historicity of John, when it comes to the authenticity of John, um, you, it, 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 is, it is not only believable, but it is true. Then let's look at the bibliographical test that Dr. Saunders talks about. Uh, the bibliographical test deals with the issue of transmission. Since we don't have the original writings, uh, it, uh, meaning autographs, and by the way, um, there are no autographs of ancient manuscripts, meaning that when people started writing, they didn't have the technology to preserve the papyrus. They didn't have the technology to preserve uh, the whatever they wrote on, uh, the vellum, um, the animal skin. Um, and as a result, uh, things like the papyrus will wither away. And uh, it withered away because they didn't have those correct temperatures, things that we have now to preserve the documents so uh, the autographs withered away. But the good news is uh, we have copies of the autographs. We have copies of the original letters. And this is what we call manuscripts. Manuscripts mean copies. So for John, uh, we, we have manuscripts. Uh, the lingering question is, do we have what the apostles wrote? And the answer is yes. So in other words, when you read the New Testament, are you getting the same intended message by the original writer the answer is yes. The answer is unequivocally yes, as it relates to the message of all the manuscripts that are, they are in agreement. The main difference that we see in some manuscripts is due to minor uh, details like spelling um, and, and um, grammatical things, but nothing that changes the content or the meaning or the message. So we can trust uh, that we have the gospel of John as God intended for us to have. So when we look at chapter 1, as I said, it introduces us to the Lagos, who John connects to Christ because he is um, the supreme one. He is the general over all creation. Um, he is preeminent over all creation. He is the alpha. He is the omega um, he is God, the Son. And John reminds us that there's nothing made that has been made that Christ did not make in his introduction. Uh, in chapter 2, he begins with a narrative about a wedding in Cana, uh, Cana, which was a, 
uh, situated approximately four, uh, four miles east of Nazareth, uh, John speaks of Cana three times in his letter. Uh, we know of its existence first through the narrative that John gives us and also John 4:46, the healing of the official son, as well as uh, 21, John 21, verse 22, which is the home of Nathaniel. Archaeologists are in dispute in regards to the specific location um, today, but we do know that Cana did exist. The story of the wedding miracle in Cana highlights Jesus' confirmation as both the Son of God as well as the Messiah. So this miracle was performed by uh, Christ to further solidify the fact that he was defined. And John gives us uh, insight into his ministry that is unique uh, among the other writings. And it's also an illustration that miracles have a significant purpose. If you missed our show on miracles with uh, Dr. J.P. Moreland, we ask that you go back into our website or our podcast a podcast platform, and you can uh, get it, uh, a chance to listen to it there. Now, miracles are performed by God for uh, two main reasons. Uh, number one, to authenticate the messenger and to authenticate the message, to authenticate the messenger as well as the message. Uh, John, in his commentary, verifies this fact when he writes, the beginning of miracles did Jesus did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and the disciples believed in him. In other words, God performed this miracle in order for his disciples to believe in him. Miracles are a signpost for a greater message. Miracles are a signpost for a greater message. It's a lovely way to put it. it uh, after the miracle in Cana, he traveled to Capernaum. Capernaum, which was located in Galilee, it was positioned northwest of the Sea of Galilee. It literally means village of Nahum in Hebrew. Many call this town the headquarters of Jesus' ministry. We learn from the Gospels that after he was rejected in Nazareth, Matthew 91, he spent more time in Capernaum. It was known for his agriculture and fishing. So once Jesus left Capernaum, he went to Jerusalem for the Passover. The Passover feast in Jewish history was to commemorate the death, uh, the death angel passing over them while Israel was still in Egypt. The blood on the doorpost signified they belonged to the God of Israel. So as a result, those with the blood on the doorpost did not die. Moses told every Israelite family to kill a lamb and sprinkle it, sprinkle his blood on the doorpost and lentils, which are wooden support beams of their house. This signified that the lamb had become a substitutionary sacrifice for them. So the Passover feast is the first of the Jewish annual events. It was a mandate for all Israelite men to visit the promised land to celebrate this feast. During the Passover, participants ate unleavened bread without yeast um, uh, and recalled how God had delivered them from Egypt. As a result of them eating unleavened bread, they celebrated the feast of the unleavened bread at the same time. So John tells us that Jesus, upon arriving in Jerusalem, visits the temple. However, he noticed that the temple was being misused. He became angry and overthrew the money changers. John records that this got the attention of the disciples. When Jesus overthrew the money changers, they recalled the scripture from Psalm 69 and 9, which says, For zeal for your house has consumed me. 
and the reproaches of those who reproach, you have fallen on me. This commentary in verse 17 further proved that Jesus was indeed fulfilling prophecy. The story then shifts from the belief of the disciples to the unbelief of the Jews. They wanted to see a sign from Jesus, 1 Corinthians 1 and 22, in order to help them make up their mind. Jesus gave them a twofold response. He will raise up his body, and he is divine. Again, John's commentary reminds us that miracles are not for entertainment, but to point to a greater message. It is God's desire for miracles to point us back to him. The miracle of the resurrection was intended to move all who witnessed that miracle to believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, verses 22 and 23. Then in chapter 3, immediately it starts with a man named Nicodemus. John tells us he was a Jewish ruler, a leader. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, John 7, 50 through 20, uh, 52. John chapter 7, verses 50 through 52. John even says the setting. He approached Jesus at night. Jesus revealed to him the concept of being born again. Nicodemus attempted to understand this concept from a natural perspective. However, Jesus intended for it to be a metaphor for a spiritual reality when he says, you must be born again. He further tries to make it plain for Nicodemus by using the illustration of the wind, verses 10 through 21. John then shifts the story from his dialogue with Nicodemus to a conflict among John's disciples, verses 25 through 36. They wanted to know why Jesus was also baptizing. John responds by telling disciples the truth. He is not the Christ. He's talking about John the Baptist. This is not the Christ, but he was called to prepare the way for the Christ. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you shall seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the, co- of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi 3 and 1. Then we get to chapter 4. Chapter 4 begins with a snapshot of Christ's omniscience, meaning his all-knowingness. Jesus knew about the counsel of the Pharisees. Warned to them, that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord, and their works are in the dark, dark, and they say, Who seeth us? Who knoweth us? Isaiah 29 and 15. Jesus' ability to baptize new converts gained the attention of the Pharisees. In addition, John gives us an insight into this baptism protocol employed by Christ. His disciples actually were the ones carrying out the baptismal rites on behalf of Jesus. Verse 2. Verse 5 is very interesting. Jesus visits Samaria instead of going around Samaria, as was the custom of many Jews in the first century. Samaria was located almost halfway between Judea and Galilee. The Jews had a long, contentious history with the Samaritans. So as a result, they went out of their way to have little contact with them. They normally took the eastern route in their attempt to avoid Samaria altogether. What was the issue with the Samaritans? First of all, According to the Jewish history, they were not full-blooded Jews. Samaritans were offsprings of Jewish and Assyrian miscegenation. They built their place of worship on top of Mount Gerizim instead of Jerusalem, Judges 9 and 7. Thirdly, some of their religious practices were at odds with Jewish practices. Jesus decided to rest at the site of Jacob's well 
in the evening, which is about 6 p.m. Roman time, 12 noon Jewish time. We learn two things from this narrative. We are exposed to the specificity of location as well as the personhood of Christ. So uh, the specificity of location, he points out the name of the city and region. Jesus stopped at Sakar in Samaria. Personhood, he was tired and he was thirsty. So John gives us the specificity of location as well as he gives us something about the personhood of Jesus Christ. Jacob's well was the land inherited by Joseph from his father, uh, Jacob, Genesis 33, 18 through 20, Genesis 48, 21 through 22. Jesus saying the Samaritan woman. So then the scene shifts to uh, this encounter with the Samaritan woman. And we'll stop right there. Our time has come to a close and we'll continue on the next episode. But this book of John is so rich in its content. And it gives us a glimpse of who Jesus, a glimpse of who Jesus is. Remember, to continue to do for truth what so many do for a lie. And please consider giving. Thanks for listening to Sound Reasoning with apologist and minister Perseus Poku from Sound Reasoning Ministries. It's our prayer that today's lesson has equipped you to share and defend your Christian faith with boldness. Sound Reasoning Ministries offers training in apologetics, biblical studies, and systematic theology. Join in on discussions on Facebook at Sound Reasoning Ministries. For more information about the ministry, to send an email, ask a question, or support the ministry, visit online at srministries.org. That's srministries.org. Listen again next week at this same time. And remember, Titus 1.9 says, Hold firm to the trustworthy message as has been taught so that you can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Sound Reasoning Ministries, srministries.org. And as always, we would like to thank our friends at Life Audio for their partnership with us on this broadcast. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you'll find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in their network. They've got shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and a lot more. Please connect to lifeaudio.com. God bless. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. God looks at your heart, not your gene size. 
Do you know the verses yet still stress over your body? Oh, I get it. I was raised in church, but I struggled with food, eating disorders, and my body for decades. I'm Heather Creekmore, host of the Compared To podcast, where we talk about all things body image and comparison from a biblical perspective. We get real about the pressure to focus on appearance in a culture where looks seem to matter most. Whether you're wrestling wrinkles or battling the scale, Compared To Who is the show for you. You'll laugh a little and be encouraged a lot. If you're ready to stop comparing and start living, visit lifeaudio.com to listen and subscribe.